You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to mark down January 5th on your calendar. And uh, if you can be here in our worship services that morning, uh, as uh, Dr. John Bonk comes to share. Um, John Bonk was a professor at Winnipeg Bible College back in the day when I went there, and Pat and I, uh, now called Providence College. And um, from leaving there, he went to various parts of the world and ended up in the States where he was probably, he's been probably one of the world's most known missiologists in the last 20 years. And uh, I was in Steinbeck Credit Union about uh, three, four months ago, and I was waiting to be attended to, and I look up, and then I see his wife, Jean, and him sitting there, and I couldn't believe my eyes. I went over, and I talked to them, and on uh, the very next day, I invited them if he could come and share, and we settled on January the 5th, and uh, still travels a lot. He's retired. They, they moved back to Winnipeg to retire. They have children in the area, and uh, it is a privilege for us to have him sharing with us and uh, on the book that he's writing right now. And uh, he, uh, he was a very important person for Pat and I. He spoke at our wedding over 30 years ago. And uh, was, uh, he's just been a real uh, man of example for us. And so I'd encourage you to, to be at that family meal and seminar as well as in the morning he'll be preaching on January 5th. Well, my goal in the sermon this morning is that through the eyes of the Gospel of Luke, the author, that we would together be able to take a look at the first few scenes that he writes about of the, the, the narrative of the, the nativity scene, the, the birth of Christ, and that in so doing, we might see along with Luke and that, that no one and nothing should eclipse the glory of the one that was to be born, Jesus Christ. And that as we look at the Gospel of Luke, we might come out of that experience in these next 30 minutes or so by, by looking at Christ so clearly from the eyes of those that were involved in the story and therefore decide ourselves that we need to make much of Christ and that anything that seeks to take away from making much of him has to be put in its place. So let's pray together that we might do that. We've just sung, Lord, about your fame and your beauty. Uh, fame and a beauty that sinful eyes cannot behold because we were so very much tied to this world and you are so holy, otherly. God, we pray that even in this time as we unfold your word that we might be able to see clearly, more clearly, your worth and therefore worship you for who you are. So please, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you make plain to us the glory of, your, of, of Jesus Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke? And uh, we're going to be looking at, as I said, three scenes. We're going to jump in as we read the scripture, though. We're going to look at the second scene that we're going to be studying this morning. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. Would you stand with me as we hear God's word read to us? Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. 
The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and he said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Thank you. Luke is the historian of the New Testament. When we open our Bibles in the New Testament, we have two books that were written by Luke. Of course, the one that we just read from is an account historically of the life of Jesus Christ for those 33 years, his life and ministry. And then the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, is the account of about the first 30 years of the early church after Christ had been ascended into heaven and the day of Pentecost come when the Holy Spirit came and birthed the church. And so we have these two accounts, and he is a very uh, time-conscious historical writer. In fact, I think I mentioned last week that in the, in the English version, it doesn't get translated, especially some of the modern uh, translations, but there is a Greek word, "geneto," which is translated, and it came to pass. And in the Matthew account of the birth narrative of Jesus, that word, and it came to pass, just is used once. But in Luke's case, the historian, he uses it 16 times, and it came to pass, because Luke is very conscious of the progression of the story and of the historical facts and account of, of Christ's birth and what preceded it as well. And so he talks about a dark time in verse uh, 5, when the Herod was the king of Judea. Uh, he talks about a long time in, in verse 7 when Zechariah and Elizabeth, these two older people, are well along in years, he refers to them. A chosen time when, when Zechariah is chosen by lot as a priest to burn the incense that day. He talks about a, a favored time as Elizabeth says that God has shown us favor and referring to a specific time. So he's, he's conscious of the time factor and the progression of the story. What I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to work through scene by scene the first three scenes of the Gospel of Luke. And on Christmas Eve, if you come back, we'll look at the next scene in chapter 2. But let's begin by looking at the first scene when we are introduced to an old priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. In verse 6 of 1, it says that they were upright in the sight of God. So this is an old priest, an old couple that are upright in the sight of God. And during the days of Zechariah, the priests had the practice, of course, of, from the Old Testament law, of going into the holy place and offering incense twice a day. There were three times when prayers were offered in the temple, but on two of those three times, one in the morning and one at 3 p.m., a priest would offer incense on the golden altar. 
And this was an, an important uh, way of offering praise and prayer to God. On the occasion that we're re- re- reading about in chapter 1, Zechariah's priestly division was on duty, and Zechariah himself, this old man, is chosen by lot, drawing of lots, to be the one who goes into the holy place to offer the incense. Now, we're not talking about the holy of holies, where a high priest once a year would go to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people from the Day of Atonement, but rather we're talking about the holy place, that outer curtained area, in between the outer court and the holy of holies. And so Zechariah, on duty, he goes in, two other priests would have accompanied him. One would have taken the ashes, the old ashes off. The other one would have brought new coals in and laid them on the golden altar. Then the two priests would have left and Zechariah would have been all alone between these two curtains, one that entered into the Holy of Holies and one that was behind him in the outer court. And in that moment, as he is all alone, he would have then, after the superintending priest would have given the signal, he would have then taken the incense and put the incense on the hot coals on the golden altar, and immediately that incense, that familiar smell, would have rose in the temple, and everyone in the temple vicinity could smell it. And immediately, as soon as that smell hit the nostrils of every worshiper, they would have knelt down before the Lord, and it would have been in silent prayer. And for several minutes... For several minutes, there would have been absolute silence. And it's in that moment that the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah. It's interesting that incense in the scripture has the picture of prayer. In Psalm 141 verse 2, David is writing and he says, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. In Revelation chapter 5, we read that the the bowls of incense are the prayers of the saints that God saves up. It's interesting. We're called in 1 Peter chapter 2 a royal priesthood that we might offer the praises of him who called us out of darkness into light. We are this priest. We are like Zechariah, and our prayers are like that incense that rises up to God. So so at any moment, you see, as a believer in Christ, you have this privilege of, of just pausing in the moment of the day or night and in praise, offering him gratitude, or in petition, praying for someone or something. That's what incense is a picture of. For us and now in this new covenant age. And so in chapter 1 verses 10 and 11 we read about this moment. This silent moment when Zechariah has an angel visitation, Gabriel. And he, he appears and he tells them about John, this miracle baby that's going to be born to Elizabeth and Zechariah in their old age. John, the word, the name means gracious gift of God. But in verse 18, it says that that Zechariah questioned the angel. He said, how can I be sure of this? For I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. You can hardly fault him for that, you would think. And yet the angel responds by saying, you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day that this happens because you did not believe 
my words. And so until John the Baptist is born, Zechariah is not able to speak. And the very first name, the very first word that he says is his name's going to be John. And so we read in this scripture that after verse 23, we read that his time of service is completed. He returns to his home. His wife becomes pregnant. And as soon as she is pregnant, Elizabeth, who seems to have a little more faith maybe than her husband, says, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So Luke's first scene is a preparatory scene describing to us the way that John the Baptist is conceived. Now, I think this is important. I think that Luke is very intentional about the story that he's telling scene by scene, and I believe that there's to be kind of a juxtaposition, a comparison, that here is a miracle about an old couple like Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament who, who have a baby. But it's about, we're about to read a story that is, is, is going to make that miracle look pretty tame because there's going to be another baby coming and it is a real incredible miracle. And so scene two of Luke's account begins in verse 26 and the scene switches from, from Jerusalem or the vicinity of Jerusalem to, to Nazareth, which is a little town in Galilee, 70 miles north in, in, uh, in Palestine. And we see that there is the same angel, Gabriel, visiting a teenage girl, a relative of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Luke links the two stories because he says the same angel visits and there's a relative that he is visiting. And this woman, Mary, is pledged to be married to a man, David, who happens to be a descendant of King David. Now, this angelic visitation doesn't occur in the temple with a priest. It occurs with a teenage girl, perhaps in her home. And it's an incredible moment in time because Mary, it says in verse 29, is troubled. In fact, it says greatly troubled. And it doesn't say she's troubled just because there's an angel. Every time we see angels in Scripture, there's somebody afraid. These are incredibly impressive beings that leave the presence of God and in a flash are in the midst of earth. And so there we have Mary. She's troubled, but it doesn't say she's just troubled at the presence of the angel. It says that she's troubled at the words that the angel speaks. And so we read in verse 28 the words, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Highly favored. Favored one. Those words have been the source of more controversy than probably any other two words in all the Bible. Favored one. Highly favored. In fact, I think that if Mary were able to be here today and give a testimony, she would say that those words have been more misinterpreted to the point where they actually have come to be interpreted by too many people to being that of absolutely contrary to what she believed about herself and what she believed about the child that she was carrying or would carry. You see, I'm referring especially to many Roman Catholic writers who have taken these two words, highly favored, and made them mean in their minds 
that Mary is therefore able to confer favor on others. She's the highly favored one that now can confer favor on others. That's the belief of so many people. She was endowed with gifts of grace and therefore has been exalted as a mediator between God and man to dispense that grace, the belief that that many people have. But of course, as we see from her own response, we see that Mary was very aware that she was simply receiving favor from God, not being given the privilege of dispensing it. As one author puts it this way, she is not the mother of grace, she is the daughter of grace. Very different scenario. I was doing some, just last night I was doing some extra study on this whole theme, and I was quite disturbed, actually, to find that in the country where Pat and I and our family served as missionaries in Bolivia, February 1st of this year, just almost a year ago, there was dedicated on a little knoll or hill in the city of Oruro, Bolivia, the largest statue of Mary on planet Earth, holding the baby Jesus. You can go online and look at it. This huge, 149 feet tall statue of Mary overlooking the city of Oruro, which is a huge mining city. And I shake my head and I wonder, oh, here is the poorest country in Bolivia, in, in South America, building the huge, the biggest statue. And what is that statue teaching and undergirding in their beliefs? I don't know as much about the Catholicism of Canada, that it has more French roots. I know more about the Catholicism of Latin America. But friends, wherever Mary or anyone else is is exalted or venerated somehow. It is at the expense of the one who is meant to be exalted, and that is Jesus Christ alone. We see that in the text, that even Mary is not the focus of this text. It's Jesus, the one that she is carrying. And so there's so many... The the well-known hymn, I love, I love the music of Franz Schubert that... Ave Maria is mostly sung to. And in the Latin, of course, it's sung, but in the the first stanza, it's actually out of the Bible. But then the third stanza of Ave Maria, translated from the Latin, says, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death. We don't get that from Scripture. We don't find that in the Bible. It was made in 1568 authoritative by Pope Pius V. And there are various uh, teachings that come out of various ages of the Catholic Church and, and again around the veneration of Mary. The idea, for example, that she, not Jesus, but she was immaculately conceived. And in so, so doing it, believing that Mary was conceived without sin. And so therefore that Mary lived a sinless life. There's nothing in Scripture to suggest that she was immaculately conceived or that she lived a sinless life. The comparison that many authors make in the Roman Catholic tradition is that Mary is like the new Eve. The old Eve and Adam, we know what they did. 
But Jesus is the new Adam. Scriptures teach that. But Scripture nowhere teaches that Mary is this new Eve. There's other teaching that comes out that is this idea of perpetual virginity that she never had sex with any man, not even her husband Joseph, who was married to her later on, and she never had any other children. That's just not true. The Bible says in the scriptures in Matthew chapter 13, 54, it names the brothers of Jesus, the, the children of Joseph and Mary, Matthew 13, as well as Mark 6, and so on. Other people teach that if Mary in that moment of angelic visitation would have said no, that she could have hindered the salvation plan of God, that somehow that in saying yes to, to Gabriel, she was participating in salvation, the redemption plan. This is going way beyond that of Scripture or what the Holy Spirit would teach. Then there is, of course, as well, the belief of her bodily assumption that, that her body and soul at, upon her death immediately rose to heaven. And that if you were to go and, and look in Palestine somewhere, you would never be able to find the ashes of Mary. That's not true. If there was some way of isolating the, the remains of Mary, the mother of Jesus, you would find them. You would find them just like you'd find anyone else that lived in that day in Israel right now. They're there, awaiting the day of resurrection, just like anyone who dies in the Lord is going to have remains that are awaiting the day of resurrection. She is no different, except the fact that God in His favor, in His mercy, in His providence, in His sovereign will, chose that she would be the vessel that would carry the incarnate Son of God and bring Him into the world, conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that we're never to pray to anyone except to the Lord. We're never to direct it to pray to Mary, to any other saint, or to any other angel. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Why do I go into such detail? Well, again, the, the whole point, the whole goal of my message, the whole goal that Luke had, I believe, as we read the text, is that nothing would eclipse the glory of Christ. No one would detract from that. And we read that. In fact, in Luke's account, there's a story that only Luke tells of the ministry of Jesus. It's in the middle of his ministry, of his earthly ministry. He's on a street one day in a town, and he's teaching. It's in chapter 11, verse 27. It says, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and who nursed you. Now, wouldn't that have been a great opportunity if Jesus was going to kind of set the record straight and clarify that indeed his mother, this Mary, is indeed a, a significant person in the, in the redemption of, of, human, of human sinners and so on. Wouldn't that have been a great opportunity to respond and say, yes, woman, amen, my mother indeed is great, and, and go on to expel? No, what does he say? In Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, he says... Rather, he's, he's actually contradicting her. He's saying, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Sorry, folks, there's no Mariolatry in that verse. There's another passage in Luke chapter 8, and 
Jesus is teaching in a house this time. And, and, a, and his mother, Mary, and some brothers come along from another town. They've come from Nazareth. They've come a long way, and they're, they're visiting Jesus. But they're interrupting his teaching, and somebody comes in and says, Your mother's outside. And what does Jesus say? He says, My mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. He goes on and he keeps on teaching. Presumably afterwards, he goes and visits his family. You see, even in the scripture that we're looking at this morning in Luke 1, the emphasis is not upon Mary, it's upon Christ. It says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over his house forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary can't receive these words. They're too, they're too much to take in. And so she responds in verse 34 by saying, how, how will this be? I, I, I'm a virgin. And then Gabriel goes on to give her another heavy boatload of theological lesson. And he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This is way too much for this teenager to take in as devoted as she is. And she responds, though, in faith, simply saying in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. The scene switches now. We go to the third scene. What is Mary going to do with this information? Can you imagine? I mean, who is she going to tell? You know what? I had an angel visit me. And guess what he said to me? He said that I am going to have a baby. Even though I'm a virgin, I'm going to have a baby by the Holy Spirit. And the Messiah, the long-awaited-for Messiah, I'm going to be his mother. I mean, they'd be checking her in somewhere. But who is it that Gabriel gave her to visit? Because in Gabriel's announcement, he said, even, even your relative Elizabeth in her old age. So what does she do? Scene three takes place in the hill country of Judea where Zechariah and Elizabeth live and where Elizabeth is expecting a child. She's in her sixth month. And the Bible says that as soon as Mary enters the house, John the Baptist begins his ministry, doesn't he? You think he began years later? No, no. He started announcing the coming of the Lord the moment that Mary entered the house because the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy. Jonathan, John the Baptist leaped for joy. And Jesus and Mary responded as well by a joyful uh, response. We read about it in verses 46 to 55 where Mary is so filled with joy that she bursts into song. This song is called the Magnificat, based on the first word in the Latin translation. And in this song, in verses 46 to 55, there are no less than 15 references to the Old Testament, which is perhaps certainly a reference to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit upon this text, but also perhaps to how devout this young teenage girl was. I've called the sermon this morning a meditation on the magnificence of Christ because that really is what the theme of this song is all about. I would like to summarize the song with three words. The word joy, humility, and mercy. Those three words summarize the song for me. Look at verse 46 to begin with. 
in Luke chapter 1 and verse 46, Mary's first words are, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Joy. What joy. David's song in Psalm 34, 3 says, Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. The word magnify in Mary's use of it, a word, compound word actually, it means to make great of. To make great of. Not to suggest that, that if we magnify the Lord that we're making him greater. As if somehow in our praises he gets, he gets greater. He's already as great as he could ever be. He's the omnipotent one. But what, it, what it's saying is that, that our praise in magnifying him expresses more accurately what he already is. And so in essence, it's like Mary is saying in this moment in time, in Elizabeth's house, Mary is saying, I have never seen God so great as I am seeing him great right now. Have you had that kind of experience ever in your life, in your spiritual journey? Have you ever had that, just that moment in time where you magnify God like you've not done it maybe in a long time? Why? Because in that moment, for some answered prayer, for some, something that God has done or communicated to you or whatever it has been, you have never seen God so great as in that moment you have seen Him and you magnify Him. There ought to be those moments in our lives. We get a picture of God. Somehow the, this three-dimensional world just somehow gets put aside for a moment and we have a a vision, an understanding, a belief in God. We magnify Him. We find joy in Him. The words of John Piper, God is most magnified or glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. When we find our greatest joy in Him, that's when He is most magnified. You know, many of you might have grown up on the shorter catechism which said in its chief, in its, in its real pinnacle point, it says that the chief end of man is to magnify or glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And you know, maybe another way of saying it is the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. You see, we're created to enjoy God. And in this moment, Mary is just enjoying the Lord. She sings about it, and she is spontaneous in her joy. I think that's one of the biggest challenges we face at this time of the year at Christmas. How do we just put aside all the other stuff and just enjoy God? Just enjoy who He is. All the other stuff is is fine. God is such a good God to us in so many ways we can count blessings, but how do we get our focus on the most highest prize and possession? Paul was very eager about this in Philippians chapter 1, this little epistle of joy that he writes, and he says, I hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage that now as always Christ will always be magnified in my body, whether by life or death, for to me to live is Christ. 
Paul talked about what it was to have a lot and what it was to have a very little, but he said, whatever happens, I just want to magnify God in my body. The psalmist in chapter 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Sometimes God will take you through paths of suffering or difficulty, maybe just to test whether your, your joy is really in Him and your magnifying of Him. Well, Mary's expression of humility is also found in verses 48 and 49. It says, for the mighty one has done, or sorry, 48, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Mary is accepting of her position in life here. We get a picture of one who is just ready to receive from God. In fact, the word verse 48 is using to describe what God does to Mary. Epiblepo is the Greek word, and it means to gaze upon with favor or pity. So God looks down and he he sees Mary, but there's nothing inherent necessarily in Mary. She was a devout young woman, but not so that she would somehow attract God to her. That is a wrong way for any sinner to think, that somehow the created thing inherently, stained by sin still, can somehow be inherently something within us that God would be so attracted to. Gee, I want him on my team kind of thing. No, it's the favor of God. It's the grace of God that is set upon Mary. And that word means that, is to gaze upon with that favor. And Mary was so conscious of that, that gave her humility, you see. Mary was so conscious that she was blessed, not because she pursued the blessing. Mary's a woman who found blessedness and fulfillment, not in what she did, but in what she received, in what God did. She knew that future generations would call her blessed because she was chosen to bear the Christ child. The lesson that Mary teaches us is that we don't find blessings by going out and seeking them, but rather by humbling ourselves before the mighty one from whom all blessings flow. So joy and humility and finally mercy. In verses 50 to 55, we we read about some of the mercy that Mary speaks of, the God of mercy that is, goes way beyond her personal kinds of, of uh, blessings, but rather the universal blessings that all who seek God, all who fear Him, will receive. And she, she recounts some of the attributes of God. He's a merciful God, eternal, from generation to generation, powerful, performing mighty deeds, holy, compassionate, true to His promises. You see, how is it that Mary responds to this incredible event as she meditates on the magnificence of God? I think that's how we should respond. We should respond to this message, to this scripture, to all the ways that God has poured out his blessing on us. We should respond with a meditation on the magnificence of his mercy and his goodness. Joy in pondering what he's up to. Where is he going to strike next? How is he going to answer prayer? Humility in serving his purposes, finding our place and our joy in knowing that that's where we're meant to be. And then peace in knowing that his mercy is going to end with a blessing. Can I share with you five things that you could do this Christmas to make much of Christ? Five things that you could do this Christmas 
that could help you enter into the spirit of Mary in this scripture and, and help you celebrate the Lord's birth in a more clear way. They're simple. Number one, come to the Christmas Eve service, 4.30 or 6 o'clock on Tuesday, because together we're going to make much of Christ. And you're going to hear testimony about others that have learned to serve and make much of him in the journey. Come and just enjoy the service with, get, get Christmas Eve centered on Christ and then go and have your family time or whatever you do. But kind of get, get the roots there. Secondly, read the Christmas story or a portion of it. It's found in Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2. In the middle of all that's going on and, and all the things that you do and your traditions, just, just take a moment somewhere to just read the truth, the history of what this season is all about. Thirdly, why don't you do something as, as, a, as a friendships or families or whatever, you, however you meet, and, and do something with the Christmas carols. There, there are so many Christmas carols that, that unpack really good theology. I'm not talking about old Saint Nick here. Those, I'm talking about, you know, something that's going to unpack veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. You know, these are the kinds of words that just sit around the table and just ask each other, what does that mean? You don't get to get fed today until you bring a, a stanza from the, you know, something like that might work, you know. <laughs> Fourthly, you could, you could, why don't you try to look for someone that Jesus called the least of these brothers of mine. Just look for someone and serve them. Do something whether it's for the least of these or whether it's from someone in your family or friendship, do something that's going to serve. Now, we all love family time. We all love our traditions. We, we, we want to say that is important. But we don't want to communicate the message to our children or to our friends that, that it really is all about us. So communicate that this is the Jesus that came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And then finally, and this is really key, I think. This is something that escapes us sometimes. Finally, and the worship team, if you could come, take some time alone. When everybody's alone or asleep, I mean, or whatever, take some time alone and do just one thing in that time alone. I don't take it, if it takes five minutes or a half an hour, but do something in that moment to to acknowledge the intangible gifts, okay? Do something in that moment to thank God for the intangible blessings that you receive. You might be thankful for the new sweater and you might be thankful to have family around the table enjoying a turkey dinner, but what about the intangibles and the eternals? Do something this Christmas alone with Christ and thank Him for those things.